Hello and welcome to this special edition of the Jinto called Life Under Quarantine. My name is Cornelius McGrath and I am your host. In this series, I will be talking to the everyday entrepreneurs, students, athletes, artists, bartenders, chefs, reporters, teachers and hospital workers about how they are finding meaning, clarity and opportunity in a time where there seems to be none. My guest today is Matt Williams. Matt Williams is a freshman biology teacher based in Phoenix, Arizona. He made it back home to the United States by the skin of his teeth, right before the start of the US-European travel ban. We talk about the sense of community Matt felt on his flight home from Dublin, life as a high school teacher during quarantine, the role of an educator at a time where students have access to more knowledge than ever before, and how he thinks COVID-19 will impact how the next generation thinks about the world at large. Matt Williams, welcome to Life on the Quarantine. Thanks for having me. I'm glad you made it back from Dublin, okay, buddy? Yeah, it was quite an adventure. Um, we actually planned this trip back in October before anyone could have expected any of this. I don't think there was even a report of a single case when I bought the tickets for $400 on Scott's Chief Flight. And over time, as things developed, we were kind of watching the news abroad, watching the news over here, trying to decide if it was still a good idea to go or not. And yeah. when we left, it was totally fine. There were some cases in Italy, it was bad in China, it was bad in South Korea, but no one would have predicted anything to the scale of what we're seeing now. Um, so we just figured we'll be careful on the planes. I went into New York City for lunch with a friend on the way there. I had a layover. Yeah. And I took the subway into the heart of downtown. We went out to lunch and then got back on the flight. And again, didn't think anything of it. Like, <laughs> now, I, I, it's the stupidest thing I could have done. Um, wow. And then while we were there every day, it was crazy watching the news and seeing, seeing things develop and things go from okay to bad to worse. Galway shut down when we were there and students Shit. were fleeing to go home. So we got on one of the last trains and it was just full of students that had cut their semesters abroad short or that were going home to spend however many months they need to with their families. Fascinating. Bring me into the world of, like, was it panicked? I know you said in the pre-roll you felt a, a, a sense of connectivity. Were you even able to enjoy the vacation? Yeah, so the day we left Galway... Um, I think we got a 1045 train out and yeah. we woke up, we ended up cutting it short. We were going to be there for a few more days and we decided it made more sense to go back to Dublin. And I wanted to get a Clodagh ring for my girlfriend because it was our one year anniversary. And that was kind of one of the things I was going to try to bring back. Oh. And right as we're walking to the train station with about 20 minutes before the departure time, I remember, oh shoot, I didn't get the Clodagh. I didn't think that we were going to leave so early. And so I leave my bag with my dad and I start running downtown. I remember this little shop that we went in that sold them. And along the way, totally by coincidence, all the stores were packing up their stuff because they kind of pack it up and then unpack it during the day. But I didn't know that. So I'm running down the street and there are trucks everywhere. There's furniture getting packed up into trucks. It's rainy. And it felt like this dystopian world is ending scene. And then I run into the shop and it's full of like 10 girls, American girls that look like they were studying abroad. And they're thinking the same thing. They're like, we were going to get bought our ring today. Now we're going home. Let's get all those last bit of souvenirs. And so it was the weirdest way to leave a place because it really felt not just like we were leaving, but like the place was going to end. Like when we were, were gone, it ceased to exist and everybody was just kind of clean. And I've never felt like that before. Um, but then going along with that, as soon as we got on the train, there was this sense of like last survivor community where it was like we made it out, us united by some common enemies and common fear yeah. um, are brought together. And, and I remember looking around the train and feeling the sense of like fondness and the sense of companionship yeah. with the people that we were riding with, even though I never had met them, probably never would talk to them again. 
um, we had this, this intense connection. Wow. And coming back into the U.S., like, how did that feel? So I think it's been really interesting, the response we've seen so far. And I've talked to people in a couple different cities because I think on some hands you see that and you see people coming together in small neighborhoods in the same way and spending more time at home around the block and helping each other out however they can. And on the other hand, you see people in metropolitan centers like New York who are fighting in Whole Foods six feet apart in line because that guy got the last roll of toilet paper that I wanted. Um, and so I think that there's been this really polarized response. And I mean, you could get into all sorts of layers of this in terms of inequality um, mm. and, and culture and nationality. But I think I've been shocked to come back and see that the response has been like that in some places and almost the complete opposite in others. Yeah, I, it is funny, right? That the one of my one of my guests yesterday described it as this thin film um of of kind of common sense um and thoughtfulness has just been ripped away from society and we've and we've realized how fragile everything is from our jobs to our health you know to our yeah. educational institutions and it's really interesting how people react in those cases yeah. uh, and i think the word Fragile is a really important word. I've been going back over the last couple of weeks to something that a friend said when we started teaching, and yeah. it was the first time we'd been in front of a classroom full of kids on that side of things, and he said, as a kid, you kind of just trust everything, and you assume that the people running the world know what they're doing, and doctors are great doctors, and lawyers are great lawyers, and now that like I'm one of those people, and I'm the one teaching kids about it, I just can't help feeling like the world is held together by scotch tape and Elmer's glue, and it's just like seconds away from falling apart at any point in time. And for me, this experience has shown that that's really true. <laughs> our systems and our, our social connections are a lot more fragile than we take them to be. And a little bug, I mean, not even a bug, a virus, it's not even a living thing. It's a tiny capsule with protein and a little bit of RNA has single-handedly destroyed the global economy and is ripping nations and communities apart. Um, and I think that one of the most interesting implications of this from my perspective is how kids growing up today but also adults are going to change their view of the world and their view of humans' place in the world yeah. because of what this experience has shown us about how powerless we actually are. Dude, oh, don't do that to me. I see what you're doing. You're kind of leaving me on my fetch. <laughs> okay, so let, let's get into it, Matt. So, like, let, let, let's just give context, right? Like, give everyone some context. You're a teacher beyond much more than that, right? And I don't mean that in any kind of pernicious way towards teaching. I think it's the most powerful thing that you can do. But I had Steve Reifenberger on the show yesterday, who I know you know, he's a college professor. And so one of the things that Steve's been talking about is despite teaching at Harvard, despite teaching in Chile, despite teaching at Notre Dame for so many years, he's never taught a class online. And so he is trying to figure out how do you create presence? You know, how do you create attention when kids are now taking classes from hotel rooms? They're back in Japan, you know, they're dealing with having to look after their brothers and sisters. So that's, that's, that's a lived college context. You're in a different context, but also you're a recent graduate, you have friends in school, family members. So bring us into your world as a teacher, as an educator, as a young millennial. What have the, the last few weeks looked like for you? Yeah. Um, so in, in terms of just how they've looked, we've switched completely to online learning. Uh, my 120 freshman biology students are in a Google Classroom now where I post a daily assignment. 
and then sit awkwardly in a Google Meet chat room waiting for them to join and ask any questions they might have, um, which is usually just me sitting there. (laughs) And I think that for me, I've been trying to make sense of this experience historically and looking at like bigger shifts in education prior to this. Um, What did they do in terms of students and teachers and the way they interact and how can we use those to give some context to the current shift? Um, And one of the most interesting things for me has been thinking about I mean, in the 1950s, let's use as an example, the point of going to school. At that point, there was no internet. There were no computers you could use to Google things. Smartphones weren't even imaginable. And so the teacher was kind of like this disseminator of knowledge. Like if you didn't listen when a teacher spoke, you were just losing value every second because they were giving you something that you couldn't access anywhere else unless you were extremely privileged to have access to a, a massive library at home or parents that were also educators are well-connected. For the majority of people, that wasn't the case. Even if your dad was or your mom was well-connected, mm-hmm. they only probably knew one area of knowledge. And the teacher was telling you all sorts of other things. But then we see this shift away from that with the introduction of the internet and the introduction of computers to the role of the educator more as a facilitator of learning and a connector. And in my mind, the way that I viewed my role before this crisis was as somebody who could kind of show kids what they needed to learn and why they should learn them and how they should connect them because the, the information's out there. They don't need you to give it to them. And to be honest, at least at my level, they don't really want you to because in their mind, they could go Google it at any point that they needed it. So why would I bother memorizing all these things right now? Right. And I think that this shift is going to do something really interesting by continuing to push us in that direction where now, I mean, students are kind of forced to Google information and look it up on Khan Academy and watch videos and learn on their own. So my role is still to show them the why and still to help them connect, but also to really ensure that they see how important it is and to really ensure that they see how relevant it is. And for me as a biology teacher, I mean, the silver lining in this whole virus is it, it's perfect for my class. It right. takes everything that we've been learning about and makes it immediately relevant to the economy. It makes it immediately relevant to families and culture, right. um, to national borders. I mean, we can use this as a context for learning about just about anything. Um, so I think that we're going to see a big shift in that direction, again, away from teacher as somebody who gives knowledge, the teacher as somebody who shows students how to use knowledge and why knowledge matters and what they can do with that knowledge. Mm. I bet you've got parents queuing up to get in your class. Hey, Matt, what's happening? Make some sense of it for me. So, dude, that's fascinating. So let me ask you this. So, like, you're not just a teacher, right? I mean, you're an incredible human being. You're a philosopher. You're a pedagogist, you're a freshman football coach, JV soccer coach. So help me understand, like, how do you, how are you there for these kids right now outside of the classroom? How are you making, helping them make sense? And, and what's their reaction? Are they like, summer's come early, let's go? Or are they actually a little bit worried? Yeah, well, the first thing I'll say, um, there's definitely a big spectrum. My school is on one end. We've been teaching every day online. There are other schools that have said no more instruction. You can give students review packets but that's it. And then there are other schools on the opposite end that have just said nothing. It's not equitable. Some students have computers, others don't. So we're not going to do anything because we don't want to make things unfair. Um, So my school is one interesting example, but it's far from the norm. And in fact, we're probably on one extreme of that spectrum. Um, I think it it helps here to actually go back to the, the Ireland experience a little bit and talk about the flight, which I know that we've talked about before. Um, after we got from Galway to Dublin and then eventually got our flight out of Dublin, the day before the travel ban kicked in, they held up the plane for five hours to allow 12 people that were stuck in customs to get their seats. Because if they had kept them in the airport and taken off on time, 
there's a good chance that they wouldn't have flown home because they would have canceled flights and everyone else would have been rebooking and so those people might have been stranded. And in their mind, and I've never seen an airline do this, they said it's worth all of the potential rebooking fees that we're going to have to incur, all that, that headache for us to reschedule your connections. Because keep in mind, this is a flight with like 170 people on it. Most of them probably aren't going to end up in JFK, so they're going to have to have connecting flights. They're going to potentially have to book hotels for people who completely missed their connection. So, I mean, this was a huge decision for them to make to delay this plane. Um, but they did it because it was so important to get those people home. And as a result of that, everybody on the plane was kind of forced into this intense, like, we are all one. Like, we might be different ethnicities, we might be different career paths, maybe we're different ages, we come from different countries, but, like, we're in this thing together. Like, literally, we're in this metal tube together. And, like, we're headed towards the same thing. We all want the same goal, which is just to get home safely. And I'm not going to be selfish. I'm going to completely put my self-interest aside right now for the sake of the greater good because I see how important it is that we all get there. And that, in a lot of ways... And, and I like the metal tube analogy for even my students. Like we're stuck in this little on this little metal screen with this piece of glass. Um, when I sit in my my office hours with them every day, and we're not teacher and student anymore. We're two humans that are trying to get to some end goal. In this case, just out of this crisis, we're yeah. trying to get to the other end of this, whatever that means. Um, and we're trying to stay sane and stay connected through the process. And so when I talk to students, usually it's not about the content it's just about like life and it's just about how are you feeling and I've been able to break through to them and, and have these conversations about things that I never would have expected because I think we just see each other as humans more than we ever have before and we're just meeting eye to eye because of this this common battle that we're now engaged in and it, does this take place in like one-on-one -on -one google meets phone calls like how are you doing all this so it's a kind of awkward, it's, it's a Google Meet that's open for anybody. So it might be a one-on-one -on -one conversation between myself and a student, and then two more students will just pop in, and we'll just bring them into the conversation, and then someone will leave to go do something, and we'll just keep rolling. And I think that is kind of a microcosm of this whole thing, too, that, like, no structure right now is really, is really sound. I've heard people talk about education at this point as, like, flying in an airplane that you're building while you fly it. Like, we're off the ground, we're moving, we're going somewhere, but... We don't really know where the cockpit is, and we're trying to put the wings on and get the engines ahead. Um, and so, I mean, our, our daily chats and our daily meets are kind of uh, an, an embodiment of the whole overall, which is just like we're just trying to make it work however we can. Mm. One theme that's been running through these conversations is that the teachers don't have the answers right now, which I think is actually a really fascinating concept, and it was something that Steve said yesterday of when he first got into teaching his model of what a great teacher was was this kind of like benevolent omniscient omnipotent you know being that just knew every answer to every question and every resource and, and actually now he laughs at that because he'll spin the question around and part of the reason why he loves co-creation and a lot of the classes he teaches on development and accompaniment and aikido is because he's genuinely interested in applying those same techniques and tools you know, to his own lived experience. And so I'm interested, like you're in a bit of a different boat in that you're teaching freshman biology. So how do you create that empathy with your students and also show them that while you do know some things, there's actually a ton that you don't know. Um, and some of that humility and I think self-discipline that's going to come from, you know, the class of 2020 or anybody that's in higher ed, now you're devoid of the institution that gave everything to you on a plate, like... Now you need to make it for yourself. Yeah, it's a phenomenal point. And I agree with 
Steve completely there. Um, I think there's a helpful distinction between expert and um, just generally smart. And really, I can't think of a word. Maybe that's because we don't have one. Just people that know how to sift through information and draw meaningful conclusions from it. Um, and in my mind, there are some classes you're going to take. If you go to med school, if you go to law school, you're going to take classes where the teacher still is that omniscient, all-knowing being that teaches you about their field in a highly specialized way. But for the majority of us now, kind of go back to our comments from earlier, the teacher is not tasked with doing that because they shouldn't be. The, the information that exists outside of them is so much greater than the information they could ever be expected to know. So the teacher's role in my mind is more to teach kids how to interact with that information and decide which information is good and bad. And let's just use the coronavirus as an example. Like if you're looking at all the news that's coming out right now and there are insane accusations and uh, um, assumptions and conclusions being made across the board, we need to teach students how to look through that noise and see something clear and, and draw conclusions that we know won't be correct and we know won't be um, the absolute truth, but they're good for now. And then we'll revise them again tomorrow. Um, and so for me, in, in a class that's based on the sciences, that's really my goal in, in teaching students, is not to teach them the answers, but to teach them how to evaluate the answers. Um, and everything we learn, and right now, again, the crisis prevents, represents a great opportunity. When we're looking at this information, how can we evaluate its worth and evaluate whether this is something that um, is worth sticking around or is worth clinging on to, at least for now? Um, so just to use a concrete example here, when we look at these articles about the coronavirus mm. and the statistics that they're presenting, um, rather than telling my students, hey, you need to know this and I need you to be able to tell people like the death rate right now and the number of cases, I want to teach them about how numbers are inherently flawed and about how the reporting system works and about how like our, our data will change over time yes. so that instead they could explain to somebody, hey, we need this data right now to make the best decisions today. But tomorrow, this data is very likely going to be different. So it's not so important that we know the data. It's more important that we know where it's coming from and how this data is being assembled and what it means right now. Um, so yeah, how, do you do, how do you do – so let, let, that's brilliant. How do you do that? How do you, how do you teach them? And how do you make sure that they're actually picking up what you're putting down when it comes to the evaluation of sources and, and coming to their own conclusions? Instead of just getting lost in the headlines, which – I mean, I could even imagine being a freshman in high school with an iPhone now. I mean, your mind just must be just getting pulled in like a million and five directions. Mm, that's a great question. Um, I don't know. I don't, I don't want to claim that this is the right way. I'm sure there are lots of ways. I don't even know if I'm doing a good job of it. Um, but I would think that it's about showing them in your own behavior and in your own thinking that you are wrong and that you can be wrong. And I remember I had one college professor that never told us what she thought and we were dying to know. We talked about incredibly controversial things and at the end of these conversations we'd be like, all right, come on, like, what do you think? Like, what do you think the right answer is? <laughs> she was like, no, I, it's a rule. I will never tell you anything about my own opinion on it. And at the time that was very frustrating, but I now really admire her choice to do that because that was modeling for us that it's not important what you think at the end of the day um, I mean, that's going to be useful to you, but it's much more important, this process of how do I engage with the information and then also having the open-mindedness to, to change your mind in the future. So I think that's the biggest thing that I try to do with students is just model that. I'll never tell them what I think is right, um, in part because I don't know that I think it's right. I could be wrong. Um, and I'll try to model that humility and model that open-mindedness for them. And I think that that comes across. And I think that for some students, that might be weird to be a teacher that isn't telling you 
this is true and this is right, but that's telling you, hey, here's some data, let's look at it, yeah. and let's try to figure out what it means and draw a conclusion knowing that we might need to revise that conclusion tomorrow. So, so tell me this, Matt. How, is your, how, how do you think your role has changed? Maybe it hasn't changed at all. Maybe it's changed 180, 360, because now you're right. Like you are limited to a Google Meet. And so how do you make sure that all of the lived experience and context and time that you would have had in class to talk about these things and connect and have serendipitous chats, you know, during, you know, lunchtime? Like, how can you make up for that? How do you think about making up for that? And how do you make sure that the delivery of what you're actually doing is, is, is reaching the audience in the right way? Yeah, it's an incredible question. I think it's incredibly important, and I don't know that we have a good answer right now. I think that teachers across the country are doing their best to invent ways um, to try to keep that human connection and keep that, that authenticity in education. Um, but, I mean, you kind of hit on, on the answer in your question. It's just not possible to do that through a computer. We can come up with, with substitutes, and we can use Zoom and Google Meet um, and comments and emails to each other as a close substitute to a conversation. But I think that's something we've realized from this experience is that there is no replacement for being in a room with somebody. Um, and there is no replacement for getting to sit down and pick up a model in your hand and turn it over and have somebody ask you questions that you can answer in live time about it. And I've seen some students express their frustration in their inability now to do that and in the way that they have to learn. But at the same time, I've seen other students who this has worked a lot better for. I've seen students with ADHD who see this as a huge opportunity to sit down and focus in a space with no distractions and knock out one class at a time and then finish their work halfway through the school day because they had nothing to keep them from doing that. Um, so I think that, I mean, obviously this would not be a model we'd want to stick with for the rest of, of civilization, but I think that it'll teach us some interesting things about how certain students could benefit from this sort of virtual learning model and then at the same time teach us what was so important yeah. about face-to-face -face instruction and about being in a classroom with a student and a teacher. Let's transition to you personally. So, so Matt Williams as a human, as an individual, saw Virginia yesterday announced stay at home through June 10th. Um, sorry, shelter in place, whatever you want to call it. I'm assuming most states, if not all, will follow the same. So how are you looking at the next couple of months? I know you had a a move prepared to Chicago and that you were going to be starting a new job, but maybe just talk about like how you're staying sane right now, where you're finding meaning, some of the things that, you know, you were enjoying. And I'm just fascinated. Like is, is Matt Williams in enjoying life on the quarantine? Are you a voracious reader and you're never far away from a, from a fun phone call like this? Bring, bring me into your world. How are you finding it? Yeah, I think the best part of this experience for me has actually been related to my introversion. Um, I'm a social introvert, and I think introversion and extroversion is something a lot of people misunderstand. It has nothing to do with how social you are, how much you like people. It has everything to do with where your energy comes from. So Kendrick Lamar is an example of an antisocial extrovert. He does not like people, but he gets energy from them. So he can get up in front of millions and perform a concert, and he'll feel great because all those people and all that energy and yeah. noise and sound is going to be great for him. But then after the fact, he doesn't want to talk to any of them because he doesn't necessarily like them. He has this group, and that's the people, those are the people that he wants to hang out with. On the other hand, I'm a social introvert, so I love people. I would love to talk to every single person in the audience there and hear right. about their life and get to know them. Right. But because of my introversion, I get tired the more I do that. And so it's this kind of terrible 
like negative feedback loop where I want to do something and the more I do it, the less able I am to keep doing it. And so on a normal day, I'll walk around campus and I want to engage with every student, every teacher and call friends when I get home. But I have like a limited battery life, like an iPhone and my battery runs out a lot faster than most people. Um, and so this has been a great opportunity for me to kind of just have complete control over who I interact with and when and for how long and what I do in between. That's been the best part about it from my perspective is I've been able to um, completely tailor my daily schedule and the amount of interaction I have today. Right, I'm going to wake up and read and maybe exercise for an hour and a half, and that's going to put me in a great spot mentally. Then I'm going to hop on the phone with a great friend and do something like this for an hour, and yeah. that might drain me a little bit, but then that's great because I'm going to go for a run or I'll go for a bike ride and then read a magazine, and that's going to help me recharge so that I'm ready for office hours at once. And then after that, I'll eat a snack and maybe take another walk, just give my brain some time to process. Um, so that's yeah. the, the biggest um, benefit of this so far. I think that the challenge, which you kind of hit on in your question as well, is just the general uncertainty. We are hoping to move to Chicago in the coming months, and I do plan, at least for now, on starting a new job and hope to do so. Um, but I think for everyone right now, just dealing with the uncertainty of the consequences is the hardest thing. It would be one thing if we knew that until this date, everything would be shut down or until this date, we'd have to live in this situation. But it's the general fact that we have no idea when this will end. We have no idea what comes next. And I think that's the biggest conversation that needs to be had um, that isn't being had, and perhaps because it, it's not beneficial right now because we still are so far away from that point. But what do we do after this? What does life look like when this is all done? Will work ever look the same? I mean, I'm going to be going into consulting and I was looking forward to flying every week and getting to travel um, and see different places, they might decide that it doesn't make sense to expose people to that much risk and we'll travel on a very essential basis, maybe once per project, and we'll work remotely for the rest of the time. Um, they're, the company that I'm working for also really prioritizes having an office culture and having people that like to come into work. But that might be a decision that has to be reevaluated now that we know the health risks involved. Um, so I think that for me has been the biggest challenge in this is just trying to wrap my head around that uncertainty and make plans knowing that I have these big transitions coming up when you really can't plan for anything because everything, it feels like any ground that you're walking on right now is sand and it's just crumbling under your feet. You got to right. just kind of buckle down and stay still. So was the, was the, was the transition easy and I, and I'm interested, right? Like this is kind of the experiment that you would never have done. So did you think before that you were going to have this great of a time? And do you think you could operate in the way that you've been operating? And I guess if you had the choice, would your life go back to the way it was or would you kind of find a, a space in the middle now? Hmm. So just to clarify on your question, you're saying in terms of the career itself or just in terms of the structure? No, 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 just the structure, yeah. Just like, you know, you seem so energized. I can get up, I can read, I can go for a run, like... That's what I'm talking about. It's more like the optimization of the perfect day, you know, if, if, if such yeah. thing exists. Or the perfect headspace or energy source, you know? Yeah. Well, I think extroverts everywhere right now are feeling this deep sense of FOMO and this general anxiety with not getting to see their friends. And in a, in a somewhat cynical way, I kind of love that because that is a good experience for them to know how introverts feel on a day-to-day -day basis. <laughs> that general level of anxiety and stress. And so I have friends that are texting me like, hey, I need to call somebody. I haven't seen anyone all day. I'm going crazy. And I'm like, yeah, that's how I feel when I'm with people all day. And I just need a break. 
Um, so I think that this experience will be really helpful across the board in terms of empathy because it's teaching people what it's like to be in someone else's shoes. I mean, there's the introvert-extrovert example. It's teaching people what it feels like to be older and live in a retirement home and potentially be isolated all day. And I mean, older people have been going through this for years and they haven't had the level of digital interaction that we're now having. So it's to a scale even beyond this. Um, I think it's teaching people just how fragile your life can be. People that have had very privileged and very um, certain and, and what would you say stable life like like I have um, are now kind of realizing like, wow, things get scary really quick when all of a sudden like things are getting canceled and you can't live on a certain paycheck and you can't be comfortable and confident with the way things are going. And that makes it harder to do daily tasks. And that's what a lot of people have been living every day before this crisis even rolled out. Um, so I think I'm excited for things to get back to normal because there are still elements of that that I miss. Mm. I'm looking forward to hopefully being able to make normal, how would I say this, a broader experience. Or I, I hope that the new normal we go back to when this is all done is a more diverse normal and diversity in terms of understanding. I hope that people come out of this experience um, more equipped to understand the differences in, in people and in experiences and in, in individuals' identities. And so I am looking forward to going back to normal, but I hope that when we do that, it will be with a deeper understanding of what normal should be. Does that yeah. make sense? Yeah, I think, I think that's beautifully put. And um, one question I've been posing to a lot of guests is people are now devoid of the institutions that have given them such meaning. And for millennia, people haven't had to interact or live or even think about these institutions you know bar some war years you know or the great depression or you know other times where disease is broken out they haven't had to ever deal with that and so the question i've been posing is what do you think happens after do people realize they can live without these institutions and so they find new interests or do they go crazy and so they just love them even more because they realize how much they miss them in the first place I think this might dodge the question slightly, but... Go for it. I You're good at that. You're good at that. I'm joking. I'm joking. <laughs> <laughs> I think that there, there's two, two kind of potential um, paths that we take after this. And we kind of mentioned this earlier. I think it's interesting because you're already seeing some places take one and other places are taking the other. On one hand, I think that you'll see people retreat inward and leave institutions that are, are larger than their immediate network. Um, and start relying a lot more heavily on trust. And I mean, the extreme of this, to give an example, could be you and I buying a plot of land um, 50 miles outside of Chicago and building a cul-de-sac and having lots for 50 houses and inviting our friends and family to live there. And we know that if this were to happen again, we'll be around the people we love and we'll be in a community that we trust. um, And we're not gonna let anybody near us that we don't trust and that we don't know about how they live and where they've been going. So I think on one hand, you'll see people start relying more heavily on trust. Um, a less extreme example might just be, and this is something that other people have been bringing up in, in podcasts and such, like having to wear um, wearable technology, like a ring on your finger that measures your temperature and having companies or social media networks monitor that information and say, hey, you're running a slight fever, so you should quarantine yourself for the next couple of days. Um, and I think information like that will then play into how we interact with each other. And, and do I want to go to a, a sporting event knowing that there might be people there that are potentially infectious. Um, on the other end of things, I think that this could be a great unifier for people. Um, Simon Sinek has a great little example that he gives 
in an old TED talk about how when you're on a college campus and you see someone that's wearing the same dorm sweatshirt that you have on, you're like, hey, like Duncan guys, like we live in the same building. Right, right, right. But then if you leave the campus and you go to the nearest city, like Chicago, for example, you see someone just wearing a Notre Dame sweatshirt and you feel that same sense of camaraderie. It's like, hey, Notre Dame. Then you leave Chicago and you go to the East Coast. And now it doesn't matter if they have a Notre Dame sweatshirt. It matters if they just have something in the Midwest. Or maybe it's like a Cubs jacket. And you're like, hey, Cubs, like you're from the Midwest. I'm, I'm from the Midwest too. Right. Then you leave New York and you go abroad overseas and you just see someone in an American shirt, any American emblem or any American idea. And you're like, hey, an American. Like, yeah, man, I'm American too. Right. And I wonder if this will kind of be like the, the ultimate level on top of that. Um, which is what I experienced on the plane when I was waiting with those people. What I've been experiencing with my kids is like, we are all humans that lived through this crisis and suffered some element of loss and had to endure this period of intense isolation. And that now is an institution in and of itself. And that now is something that brings us together. Um, So I definitely agree. I don't think we'll ever return to institutions as normal. Um, And I honestly think we're going to move in one direction or the other. And maybe it will depend on the community and the location, which way they move. But I think we'll see people either one relying on trust a lot more and bringing those that they trust closer within, or two, people kind of opening up their boundaries altogether and seeing everybody as part of a larger institution. Two questions. Do you feel more connected to your students at this time? And do you feel just more present? or maybe even can comment on other people in your life, do you feel like they are more present because of corona? I think in terms of the first question on connection, in some ways I do in that human-to-human sense, and in other ways I don't. And that's just because you can never you can never substitute getting to see someone every day and give them a fist bump when they show up and right. ask them about the basketball game that they played in last night and ask them what they're going to do next weekend. Um, and so I think that this is showing me more layers of, of connection um, and more ways that we can interact. Um, but I think it's more complicated than more or less. In terms of, of being present, I mean, it's definitely hard not to be present when you spend all day in a, in a 300-square-foot room. <laughs> um, but oddly enough, I think that the lack of, of change and uh, the stability almost makes it harder yeah. to be present. Because I think that sometimes moving both physically and mentally shakes you out of your comfort zone and forces you to kind of figure out what's going on around you and ground yourself again. And it can become very easy. I almost feel like a little cog in some machine when I live in my apartment all day. I wake up, I go to the same bathroom, I turn on the same faucet, when I go to the same kitchen and push the same button on the coffee machine. And I repeat this procedure every single day. Um, And that's where the bike rides and the runs and the walks are so important because if I don't break out of this little space a couple times a day, I start to just feel like some little repetitive piece in a greater machine. Ooh, because most people would say that's their life. Yeah, so you're you're describing a routine of, you know, I get to do whatever I want every day, right? But you're finding that that's feeling rote. But most people would would describe, I think, based on what I see and hear a lot, that actually going to the job, traveling, you know, going to see family, these commitments, that commitment's like, that's the routine. And that's been broken. But you, you're saying, actually, no, I've already felt like I'm, I'm back in just a new cog. Yeah, and, and that makes me wonder how different my experience with work might be from 
other people because I would, yeah, I would, I would disagree with that and say that for me, going to work every day is one of the most dynamic things I could do. I mean, I take the same freeway and get on and off at the same exits, but mm. I see different cars along the way. Some days there's an accident, other days there's an ambulance driving next to me, other days um, there's someone biking on the road, and I see crazy things. I get hit in the windshield with a rock. Sometimes the sun comes up before I leave. Other times it comes up <laughs> after. And I'm very acutely aware on the freeway. I watch the planes land sometimes. And then because of the way that the Phoenix airport is set up, the wind speed changes the direction. So sometimes they're taking off. Other times they're landing. And that's something that I try to notice every morning when I drive to work. And then as a teacher, I mean, every day is completely different. You teach the same class five times in a row, and it will go five different ways because every group of students is so different. Um, and I mean, you imagine 22 emotional, sentient yeah. beings in a hyper-connected world living with this crazy news cycle and right. more computing power in their pocket than the Apollo mission had. And they're all coming together in this tiny little room and you're trying to force them to learn about something that they may have no interest in right now. Right. Um, I mean, every day is a, is a new adventure. Um, and so without that, with the switch to online learning, now my teaching is just posting a lesson. I write one lesson, I press post, and that's it. And it's the same monotonous thing every single day. Um, but I can see where other people are, are coming from in terms of different jobs might have that feeling um, before the quarantine. Yeah. Matt, fascinating talking to you. Um, this is one of, I'm sure, many conversations we're going to have over the next few months, especially if you're in a routine, mate. I'm going to take full advantage of that and uh, <laughs> start tapping you up for a weekly episode. Um, I always end, and I think this is important to end on, is how can we support you right now? If there's people listening, interested by what you say, want to learn more about what you do, or you know, or just other teachers or students in need, how can we support you? I think that people are, are doing a phenomenal job right now supporting educators. I mean, most families, if not all families at this point, have their kids at home, and I think they're realizing suddenly how hard it is to be a teacher, because so much of it is just behavior management and um, supervising kids and, and getting them to do things they may not want to do. Um, so I think people are doing a phenomenal job of, of supporting educators, and if anything, I would probably ask, how can educators support you more? Um, in terms of the, the bigger picture, I think personally for me, my one ask for anybody listening would just be to continue um keeping an open mind and being flexible and engaging with the information that we know about what's going on in a way that is open-minded and forward-looking. I'm starting to see people um, try to jump to conclusions, and I'm starting to see people get frustrated and um, get annoyed with the length of time that things are going on yeah. and try to push the pace in a way that I think is, is going to be dangerous. And personally, my big, my big hope is just that we can continue um, – to be patient and to take things one day at a time and evaluate every situation um, as a new one rather than, than trying to simplify things. So that would be my only ask in terms of support. Awesome, brother. Well, look, great to see you. Thank you for making the time. And uh, yeah, can't wait to get you back on. We've got much more to discuss. Absolutely. Thanks for having me, Cornelius. <laughs>